This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth Control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woo, to the moon. To infinity and beyond. Hello again, and welcome to episode 100 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the biggest stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce, and we're both drinking champagne to mark the 100th episode. Are we? Is that what is in my Diet Coke can? <laughs> <laughs> I am wondering how the heck we got to where we are today. Billy thinks it might have something to do with the moonshot. Of course he does, Katie. This is bringing back memory straight away of that day in August in 2021 when we caught up with Billy and asked him about his song and he said these things about this particular lyric. It was hard to believe looking at the moon that there were human beings up there. Uh, it was a very cathartic moment. I was living in my first apartment in Oyster Bay. I ran out and looked at the moon and I couldn't see the moon because the, the lights were too bright in the, in the village. But I, I did see it on a TV. I had a TV at that time. Uh, cathartic, eh? Cathartic. Is that what you call it? I call it a big pain in the hindquarters. I was a child in South Bend, Indiana on the day of the moon landing. I was watching cartoons. They were interrupted <gasps> by blurry black and white images of uh, I don't know what but it was definitely astronauts in outer space. I was not impressed. <laughs> I was wondering where H.R. Puffin's stuff and Wiley e. Coyote had gone. <laughs> now feel that perhaps I was a little hasty to be peremptory about it. But what about you? What are your memories? So it took place before I was born, Katie. Oh, whatever. Only just. But I found myself, because we meet some villains, don't we? Yes. In the course of recording this podcast, I found everything I read about the moonshot and the Apollo 11 landings so uplifting yeah it's really the best that humanity has to offer and also one of the best things that humanity has to offer is our returning guest Kit Chapman Kit joined us for Edsel is a no-go Edsel is a no-go no. he is a journalist science historian and leader of the MA journalism course at Falmouth University welcome back Kit thank you for having me back are we right to think of this as high points in the 20th century there's an argument that does the rounds and I like it Katie which is that it's the greatest single technological achievement in the history of the human race. It's got to be up there. I mean, this is an incredible achievement. I mean, we, we went and landed on the flipping moon. How awesome is that? How can you not love that? Even if you're not a science geek like I am, that is an astonishing thing to do. And also, it happened without the input of porn. Like, I, I mean, it follow... <laughs> do we know that for there a fact? There is definitely moon porn. There, I, follow, me, follow me down this torturous path here, guys. What I'm saying is, my understanding is, a lot of the big technological advances are pushed along in a fashion by the desire to see naked people getting it on. But I don't believe that the moonshot was part of that. However, moonshot is quite a provocative term. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the crazy sort of statement about that kind of stuff is um, all technology is based on, on sport or war. And if you want to add sports, war and sex, I am perfectly happy to do that. I thought you were going to say sport or spurt. 
Missed an opportunity. <laughs> That's the title of our new podcast. <laughs> oh, we are on fire. So, Kit, when we meet this particular lyric in the song, it almost feels, despite what Billy has just told us, moonshot's almost the wrong phrase to use because moonshot sounds like the start of the adventure in the early 60s with JFK rather than what we see in 1969 on the surface of the moon. You're absolutely right. So the, the moonshot speech is actually one of JFK's sort of most famous speeches. But this is the progression of humanity's dream for about 100 years. So you've got Jules Verne, you know, from the Earth to the Moon. You've got H.G. Wells, the first men in the moon. People have been working this for ages. And people have always been looking at how far we can go with things like rockets. So Werner von Braun, who is someone who is heavily involved in this, we'll come back to him, ardent Nazi, V2 rocket development. In America, you've had people like the founder of NASA that NASA hates to talk about because he was also a sex cult leader and a black magic practitioner called Jack Parsons. So by day, he was designing rockets. By night, he was getting pregnant women to leap through fire and was trying to summon up the Scarlet Woman by masturbating in the desert with L. Ron Hubbard. Crikey. So, interesting chap. He has a lot of very engaging hobbies. He, d- he does. So he's the, he's the sort of link between Alistair Crowley, Werner von Braun, and, and L. Ron Hubbard, bizarrely, and one of the founders of NASA. If you go onto NASA's website, there is literally one line saying, and Jack Parsons helped found us. That is all <laughs> they mention about oh, him. Oh, it's a missed opportunity. It is, but this has been going on for a long time. There's a lot of ambivalence previously uh, from previous governments towards space in America, and that's how the Russians are going to get ahead. But with, uh, with this moonshot speech, everything accelerates. And why is there ambivalence? Do they think it's just too crackpotty, crazy of an idea? It's, it's too bloody expensive uh, of an idea is the key thing. So you have a look at the big projects that the US had ever really done, apart from like engineering projects such as you know, Hoover Dam, for example. The biggest two are the Manhattan Project during the Second World War. That's two billion US dollars, about 40 billion today. And that took 600,000 people. I mean, that spanned the continental United States. And that wasn't the biggest project of the war. And the one that is, is kind of telling us to where the US wants to go, is the B-29 bomber. That was actually the most expensive program in the Second World War. And that's kind of where they see the money going. You know, remember, Eisenhower was a general. Of course, he does warn about the, the military industrial complex in one of his very famous letters. But that's where all the money is going. And so when Kennedy comes up and he asks Congress for an immediate injection of $531 million and an estimated seven to nine billion over the next five years. Everyone's thinking, where are we gonna get this money from? And the real driver of this is actually the VP. It's Lyndon Johnson, because he's been a fan of space travel before Kennedy was even elected. Mm. And I'm wondering what was higher up on the agenda regarding the moonshot. Was the idea was, hey, this will be a really cool PR win for USA. Or were they thinking this will result in actual scientific advances? I I love this question because that's what my PhD is in. It's it's in (gasps) Cold War uh, stuff and whether or not it's political or whether or not it's scientific gain. That is is my jam. And the answer is it is always both. So this period in the, in the Cold War, you even have two periodic tables because the US have claimed they've discovered some elements, the USSR <laughs> claimed they've discovered it, and they've named them different things. <laughs> so you have all this kind of divergence. In the Cold War, you never separate science and politics. There's always some sort of combination. And really, this is political. I mean, Johnson starts looking at it because we've got Yuri Gagarin up there. We've got the, the Russians beating us. We've got Sputnik, things like that. And so in 1957, he's starting looking at it. He's, the, he's a majority leader in, in the Senate. He puts together a 17-point plan in 1958 to get an American into space. 
And he's the driving force to get NASA set up. You know, he wanted a Department of Space and he kept pestering Eisenhower about it. So eventually you get this, uh, this driver and then you get Project Mercury, which of course the Mercury 7, the right stuff. These are the guys that are going to go into space. And I think you've covered that briefly with John Glenn in the song already. There's two big speeches at the start of this Grand Adventure kit. There is the speech that JFK makes to Congress in May 1961, which by any standards is a great speech. But then he blows himself out of the water with the speech that he makes at Rice University a year later. This is the we choose to go to the moon. I wanted to do the impression kit. Um, I don't think we should. I was going to say, I almost did it. You know, you can't help yourself. Not because it is easy, but because you it is do hard. it. Uh, we go to the moon. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Something like that. That's so much better than mine. <laughs> You got the hard bit. Go. Absolutely that, spot on. That's Rice. That's Rice University. That is a year after his moonshot speech. And that's to Congress, as you say, 25th of May, 1961. And that is less than a month after America has got its first man into space. Now, that's Alan Shepard on Freedom 7. We haven't even got to John Glenn orbiting the Earth at that point. You know, we've literally gone up, diddly, up, up, and down, diddly, down, down. That's all <laughs> they've got to. And so some people see when he when he comes up with this speech, you know, it is completely realis- unrealistic because yeah. they didn't have a rocket to get to space. You need the Saturn V rocket. They didn't have the technology. They didn't have the people. They didn't have the calculations. They didn't have a space flight center uh, in Houston, which becomes the manned flight, space flight center. You didn't have mission control at Cape Canaveral. But the thing is, Kennedy already knows he can do it. Um, so he gives a speech 24th of May. In March, James Webb, who is the administrator of NASA, has come to ask Kennedy, you know, can I put a man on the moon? And Kennedy says no, purely because of it being too expensive. So he knows the idea is already there. Um, he actually consults with Werner von Braun, as I mentioned, an ex-Nazi rocket scientist, who comes up with this sort of guidelines as to whether or not they can do it. 29th of April, Braun lists it and says he needs to go 10 times more powerful than the Soviets have currently got. We do have a good chance of beating the Soviets to get to the moon, but we don't have a chance of putting a lab into space. We have a sporting chance of maybe putting a transmitter on the moon, a sporting chance of sending a crew around the moon. So the reason they choose the moon landing is they know they can beat the Soviets because it's the long game. Mm. Now, when Kennedy delivered his moonshot speech in 1961 and then the following speech, was it seen as hollow political claptrap or was it perceived as a courageous visionary project? I mean, this is a courageous visionary project, but bear in mind that JFK at this point really needs a win. So he did campaign on the idea of, of space exploration. Part of that was Johnson sort of pushing, pushing his agenda. But the USA at this point has a bloody nose. This speech comes after the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, it's just come after Yuri Gagarin in space. So this is immediately following those two events. And Kennedy just needs the political win. And so, of course, yeah, let's go to the moon. Sounds fantastic. Uh, I'm not going to be president in 1969, the end of the decade. I don't have to worry if we do it, but let's set that as our target. There are so many things they have to achieve, Kit, on route to it. And I find it fascinating how the way it happened in the end was one of only four ideas at the start, all competing. The idea that you'd have, okay, a rocket, and then you'd have a command and service module, and then you'd have a lunar landing module. 
actually wasn't the favourite at the start. Yeah, so you have to have, have a look at the technology. So there were, there were a couple of options. One was just to send a rocket straight there and straight back. Uh, one was to send a rocket that kind of broke off and you'd land on the moon and then you'd blast off again. And then there were two variants on how you actually did the, the, the module landing part. And eventually we come to this idea of rocket blasts off into space and we've got the command module and the actual lander. The command module goes around the moon and the, the lander actually lands on the moon. That's Eagle for the, uh, for the Apollo uh, 11 mission. That's got two astronauts in it. The command module's got one. And then it rejoins with the command module and they all sod off back home. It seems complicated though, doesn't it? Like it, that seems to me, to use a pool analogy, like you're trying to play one ball onto another ball onto another ball, whereas the rocket straight to the moon just feels like a straightforward pot. It's incredibly complicated. It's, it's the best option because of the way that various scientific things that I don't fully understand and so I'm not going to pretend <laughs> that I do work. But um, the key thing to remember is that they are doing the calculations by human. You know, people were actually called calculators. Katherine Johnson is a very famous example of that. Um, she was a black scientist um, in America. A Hidden Figures, the movie, she's one of the central figures in that. Margaret Hamilton is another lady. She's at MIT. And the code that she writes uh, for the Apollo guidance computer is actually as tall as she is. There's this very famous photo of her standing next to this stack of code that is her height. Wow. And this is just to get people on the moon. So it is incredibly complicated, the calculations. And the other thing is using technology that we've just started to experiment with that's really kind of new. So silicon chips and computer chips weren't invented for the Apollo program. But something like 60% of them in the early 1960s were being used in the Apollo program because they needed to have this kind of calculation. So the push in technology is just astonishing. It is rapid. There is no way they can do it in 1961. And then by 1969, they absolutely can do it. That's eight years. It's incredible. Okay, here is a question from a dummy, me. Could we get to the moon with the technology that's in our smartphone? <laughs> Unless your smartphone has a way for you to breathe oxygen, um, probably <laughs> but, not. But you know what I mean. It's like they say all this technology, all the technology that's involved in the thing that that computer we hold in our hand. I understand it's like much more evolved than what went into the the spacecraft. You're absolutely right. So in terms of the actual the computing power that is in your hand today mm. could absolutely pilot you to to the moon if mm. you if you use that pure raw computing power. But bear in mind the computing power that we have today is astonishing. So I'm actually really lucky. I've been inside the world's fastest supercomputer twice. And this is like something the size of four basketball courts. It's just massive. I think it had 17,000 graphics cards all lined up together. Uh, and the computing power, we talk about it in flops, and we're now at 10 to the 15 flops, um, force, force of operations per second. And data from Star Trek used to boast that he was only a fraction of that speed. You know, so the, <laughs> in the 1990s, what was considered an impossible speed is now kind of achievable uh, just by a, a row of PlayStations together, things like that. So we are now in a, a technological age where we are just looking at things almost sort of retrospectively and going, wow, they didn't have a lot back then and we can beat them with just our phones. It's all about ingenuity. It's all about coming up with these ideas and bringing the technology that you've got at the time and making it work for you. And they absolutely do it. But there are hairy moments. They have to kind of think on their feet. Neil Armstrong almost dies in one of the Gemini missions and he has to basically take control and work out how to fix it. And, and he does. He comes back to Earth and he survives. The Apollo 13 mission. The Apollo 13 mission was kind of astonishing that they actually built... Uh, a replica on Earth of all the stuff they had around them. 
and they managed to solve how the, how do you get back to Earth while you're going around the moon and you're going out into space and you, you somehow need to come back, but you don't have any power and you're running out of air. How do you fix it? So there's this combination of technology and human ingenuity that I don't think we've ever matched. Well, that is the thing that's so incredible. In fact, that was my little secret mission behind the question, which was with a certain degree of confidence, we could do these things today. But back then there was no confidence. It was like the equivalent of stringing together two empty tin cans with a little piece of twine (laughs) and then just flinging it up into the air and hoping for the best. I mean, how audacious that was and how crazy and reckless. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's really kind of unpleasant. People have this sort of romantic notion of what being an astronaut is like. You are basically in a tin can uh, with recycled air with smelly other people. There's no way you can get to, you know, you can't phone someone for help. Um, you might be able to talk online and things like that. And so I always find it fascinating. There's a, there's a great book by uh, someone called Mary Roach called Packing for Mars, where she talks about it. And, and basically, do you want to be in a spaceship with your own recycled farts for, you know, months on end? Absolutely not. Eating awful food and you have to poo in something that is basically the size of a doggy pickup poo thing. Pooper scooper. <laughs> a pooper scooper, yeah. A space pooper scooper. <laughs> and, and you've got to think about things. Everything's flying around there. So things get kind of get messy because nothing drops to the earth. You know, if you have any crumbs... Those crumbs are just going to be flying around constantly because there's no gravity. Oh, I'm a neat freak, so that would drive me crazy. I mean, the good news is they did. They did. Uh, the Black and Decker was actually hired to make. It was actually designed to pick up moon rocks uh, initially, but it became the Dustbuster. So, <sighs> if you've ever used a portable vacuum cleaner, that was designed basically uh, to Hoover the moon to try and gather samples. <laughs> So growing up in the 60s, I was a a small child, but I was glued to the television at an early age. The moonshot and the space race had a huge impact on popular culture. I mean, I was watching reruns of My Favorite Martian and Lost in Space. Of course, there were the Jetsons cartoons. So can you talk a little bit about how this captured the imagination of, of the public, not just in America, but everywhere? Oh, no, everywhere. And this is even before, you know, Kennedy's speeches. So you have things like Dan Dare in the UK in the 1950s. Tintin going to the moon was in 1950. And when the astronauts came back during the Gemini missions in uh, 1965, two of them were actually taken to the White House. They stayed overnight in the White House. And 50,000 people turned up in Washington, D.C. to see them. They were celebrities. You know, they were heroes. I think my favorite pop culture sort of reference is the Thunderbirds. So I don't know if you know this, but the the Thunderbirds were actually named after the Mercury 7. So John, the Thunderbird, is John Glenn. Alan is Alan Shepard. And Virgil is, is a guy called Gus Grissom, whose first name was Virgil. Let's talk more then about the, the humans who are part of the Apollo program, because they're all fascinating characters in their own right. There's 32 astronauts selected at the start of the program. In the end, 24 will fly and 12 will land on the moon. When you're a kid, Kit, and you hear about Neil Armstrong, you just assume he is a hero. And clearly he has any number of heroic parts to his character. But that mix between the three astronauts on the Apollo 11 mission, so Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, is an interesting one because they're not always the best of friends. No, they're they're not. And it's kind of interesting where their backgrounds come from. So Neil Armstrong was unusual in that technically he was a civilian at the time. So Neil Armstrong, renowned for being very cool under pressure, very quiet and reserved, not always the most popular, but he's, he's, he's very sort of 
capable. That's the thing. Everyone says he is the most experienced pilot, but quite quiet and reserved. You've got someone like Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin is highly religious. Uh, he actually has a religious service when he's on the moon. And then you've got Michael Collins, of course, who is the command module pilot. Very different character again. Um, and now, obviously, Neil Armstrong and, and Michael Collins have passed away. We still have um, Buzz Aldrin. He can get a bit punchy sometimes if people challenge his whether he's gone to the moon, which I think we might come on to. I'm assuming that he also wanted to be the first man in history to set foot on the moon. <laughs> I think that's when he gets punchy. I think he's fed up of being asked that question. Um, Buzz Aldrin was, uh, as I mentioned, he was in the, uh, the, he's from the United States Military Academy, uh, United States Air Force. He was a jet fighter pilot. He actually shot down two MiGs during the Korean War. Um, so he was an incredibly decorated pilot. And I imagine that when the eagle sets down, of course, you want to be the first guy. I mean, literally, it's outside the door. There's, there's, there's it for the taking. But my instinct, and, and when he talks about it in uh, in the past, when he's been sort of you know asked questions about it ad infinitum, as I guess you would be when you're the second man on the moon, he always says that you know he followed the mission because he was he was in the military and that's what you do. If I were him, I would have been incredibly envious. I've heard a story, Kit, and I don't know if this is true or not, that because Buzz is the second man on the moon, that he refuses to take a picture of Neil Armstrong on the moon with his own camera and the pictures that we see of an astronaut with the shiny helmet and visor are all Buzz Aldrin because Neil Armstrong has taken it with the camera on his chest. So I know the picture, the, the very famous picture of the of the guy on the moon is Buzz Aldrin. Um, I don't know whether or not that he was refusing. Um, my favourite story about the, the moon photos and the moon photos have been poured over countlessly. You know, there are very, some very, very famous ones. Obviously, people sort of point into with hoaxes and things like that. That's just nonsense. My favourite thing is if you have a look down on the moon lander, there is this white bag. The first thing that we did was basically drop our trash. Because we're humans, that's how we roll. And my understanding is inside the white bag, they'd been there for, for several hours. Obviously, there are certain body functions that humans need to, to do. And so it's entirely possible that the first thing we did was basically drop a doggy bag of human doo-doo on the moon. Oh, that is so classy. It'll still be there, will it? Yeah, absolutely. It's all there. I mean, the, the big question, which we don't know, is whether or not the bacteria from our poo are still there. It's kind of one of those interesting questions because it could have been killed by essentially by you know solar rays and exposure, things like that. But there might well be bacteria from, uh, from Buzz Aldrin's dinner or something like that. In later cases where people are going on the moon, I think it was Ed Young on one of the later missions starts uh, starts talking about, you know, is it okay to have a shit on the moon? What was the tone of voice in that? Was it a sort of rhetorical <laughs> question or was it a desperate plea? Asking for a yeah, friend. I've got the transcript here. It's, you've got to shit, huh? That figures, I wish I could shit. I'd feel a lot better. I don't. I don't have the slightest inclination, but I know what's going to happen. I'm not going to be the first man to shit on the moon. <laughs> here, here's a technical question. I need to ask it. Peristaltic persuader in zero gravity, what happens to your large intestine and bowel movements? I mean, do you get constipated on the moon is what I'm asking. It's, I mean, there are, there are, it's not a zero gravity environment on the moon. So the moon uh, does have some gravity. Oh, that's that's right, why that's they're not right. flying off. Oh, yeah, of course. People have asked this question. And it's one of the things that you see uh, when, when school kids sort of ask questions to the International <laughs> Space Station. <laughs> yes. It's like, you know, what happens to your bowels when you have a poo and things like that? And what happens if you've got a fire on the thing? They, they don't like doing the fire, obviously. Um, they, that's the one thing you do not want in space. But yeah, uh, we know Apollo 16, they were given potassium drinks, potassium supplements. 
because they, they realized that their body was being depleted. And uh, John Gart Young actually got the farts, as he said, didn't realize it was being broadcast to Earth and started complaining that he was farting and, you know, percolating in his own juices, as it were, uh, in his spacesuit while it was being broadcast live to Earth. Yeah, well, farting is one thing, but following through is a whole nother story. <laughs> So let's talk about the drama of that particular month then, Kit. Is there a certainty as those three astronauts climb into the command module of Apollo 11 that they're actually going to make it? Uh, No, there isn't. And so very famously, Richard Nixon wrote a letter which was in case of, you know, catastrophic failure and moon landing. And actually, I would say Richard Nixon's best speech is the one that he never gave, which is this fantastic moving speech about what happens if the astronauts don't come back. You know, how do we actually talk about this? But bear in mind that the Apollo program had been running for several years at that point, and we do have fatalities. So most famously, Apollo 1, they were test launching it. They were in a man launch, um, and there was a fire in the cockpit. And because there was so much flammable material in there, as I say, you don't want fire in space. You're in a confined space and you can't get out. Velcro, nylon, things like that. They all died, and it was an incredibly horrific accident. And it set the program back, no question. So there's no Apollo 2 or 3. And the first manned mission after that is actually Apollo 7. Uh, the rest are unmanned. You also have incidents involving Neil Armstrong. So while he was piloting this strange contraption called the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle, which is kind of like a, a flying table, a table with jets attached to the legs, essentially. And he's, he's got to try and control it to see if he could actually land on the moon. Um, he has to eject. He has to actually uh, get an ejector seat and, and parachute down because it's going to kill him so there are accidents in there people were taking their lives into their own hands and as i say these are incredibly brave men who went to the moon this is something that i think has been beautifully and thoroughly covered but i'm just wondering if you can give us your perspective on that initial first step on the surface of the moon, that whole, uh, you know, what went into it, how it was decided, what was going to be said. I mean, there must have been a script written. I'm just wondering about, like, setting up that whole historic nature of of the choreography. My understanding is that Armstrong himself was the one that came up with the words. He was trying to think of how he was going to describe it. And I think initially he had actually planned just to say the, you know, one giant leap for mankind or similar. And it was only as he was going down the steps, it just occurred to him that, you know, this is one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, which is arguably the most famous sentence in you know the 20th century. And he does. I mean, then they, they sat down there and they only walk around on the moon's surface. They've, they've actually been on the moon uh, after the landing for about six hours. See, that's extraordinary to me. That's like arriving <laughs> at the greatest destination ever and just going, should we just... Just sit here for a bit, a bit longer. Picnic, picnic in the car. Should we go now? No, let's sit here for a bit longer. And <laughs> now we're ready. <laughs> well, they, they had to check things out, and obviously they also want to make sure that they that they're one one they're ready and one it's safe, things like that. Because the one thing that never is never mentioned with Kennedy, his goal is not just to get people to the moon, but to bring them back safely. Mm. And so what are, what are those guys actually doing on the moon? Are they just bagsing it for the U.S. like dibs? Or are they actually doing some space business? Well, well, first of all, they're having a shit and dropping it in a bag. Um, 
Uh, as I mentioned, Buzz Aldrin does actually hold a religious ceremony on the moon. Um, okay, he was a, Get, he was getting an like minister. pooing and praying. Very <laughs> essential. The main thing they're doing is walking around actually gathering samples because this is a scientific mission. So they do leave certain things on the moon. They leave uh, a plaque uh, just saying that, that you know, for all mankind. They do leave some uh, memorabilia uh, for the men who have, have died to get them there. And of course, they put the flag up. The flag comes on a little sort of stand pole that you unfold and outlows the American flag. Of course, they're taking photographs, things like that. And they are trying to record what it's like on the moon. So they are getting these, as I say, modified dustbuster, what becomes the dustbuster out, and they are gathering a huge amount of, root of lunar samples and rocks. They don't have the, uh, the, the lunar rover. That is on later missions. They don't bring anything sort of goofy like uh, the golf club. Very famously, you know, people were hitting golf balls on the moon. That isn't the first mission. Once we've done it once, we can start having a little bit of fun, basically. But it's a scientific mission. Let's talk about the international reaction. How well did this go down with the former leaders of outer space, the Ruskies? <laughs> Again, we were talking previously about how obsessed people were with this. One fifth of the world's population, 600 million people, at the time probably the largest TV audience in history, depending on how you view the Kennedy assassination, were watching into this. Everybody was into this. When Kennedy makes his moonshot announcement, the Russians do not respond at all to that. Mm. They keep it very, very tight chested. Their first reaction when Apollo 11 happens is to insist that there was no race whatsoever. The space race never happened. We were never interested <laughs> in that. Uh, Radio Moscow <laughs> says the fanatical squandering of wealth looted from the oppressed peoples of the developing world. That's a great take. Uh, some of the Russians tried to ignore it. Some of them were insulted. But generally, people were fascinated because, of course, it's an incredible achievement. Even if you're an American, Yuri Gagarin was a fantastic achievement. The way that it was actually broadcast to the world. So depending on where the dish was, basically you needed a massive dish to get the signal. And the best one they could find was Parks Observatory, which is in the middle of a sheep station in Australia. NASA actually sent a guy down to Australia to make sure that everything worked. And this beamed the broadcast around the world. The BBC coverage, James Burke, who was in Tomorrow's World, and uh, Patrick Moore, as you might expect. They also had Dudley Moore, Ian McKellen and Judy Dench, specially commissioned music from Pink Floyd. And they played the, a song that had come out a month previously, which was Space Oddity by David Bowie. Right on. But that song doesn't end particularly well. I think they probably trimmed it down, as, as the BBC are wont to do. Um, ITV <laughs> went a, a slightly different route, it has to be said. One that I probably would have gone with. They had David Frost's Moon Party. <laughs> and they had Peter Cook, Sammy Davis Jr., Cliff Richard, Cilla Black, Hattie Jakes, and Eric Sykes. Um, it, it went on <laughs> until 3 a.m., and it was so long that Engelbert Humperdinck apparently collapsed from exhaustion. <laughs> Couldn't handle it. To me, that says everything you need to know about the United Kingdom <laughs> and your culture. I'm wondering, Kit, how soon after the moon landing did the It Was Staged conspiracies begin? Um, so it's mid-1970s that. Uh, it's a guy called Bill Casing who was, as I mentioned, the, the Apollo program was huge. 400,000 people were working on it. He was an engineer that worked on Pilot Project. Uh, he wrote a book called We Never Went to the Moon. And this is right at the heart, um, it's just after after Nixon has left. And so it's right at the heart of the Pentagon Papers. You've know, got Watergate, you've got Vietnam. People want to believe that it's nonsense. And then in uh, 1978, you get a movie called Capricorn One, uh, which had uh, the unlikely astronaut pairing of James Berlin and OJ Simpson. And 
they actually stage a launch in this movie. It's all filmed. And it's kind of based on the book, kind of based on the ideas. And then stories start emerging, things like Stanley Kubrick directed it, all that kind of stuff, because obviously he's famously obsessed about details, things like that. I mean, it's it's nonsense. We know that we put some people on the moon. The reason it doesn't emerge immediately after Apollo 11 is because we're still sending people up into the moon into the 1970s. Now, as I mentioned, we have Apollo 17 as the last mission. And so you can't say, oh, you didn't go to the moon when the next week there's going to be another mission over to the moon. It's only when people start to lose a little bit of momentum, they stop paying attention to what's been going on, that they, uh, that they start uh, seeing these conspiracy theories emerge. There's so many delightful details about this whole thing, Katie, that have tickled me. The fact that the pre-flight breakfast for the three astronauts is a somewhat prosaic steak and chips with some eggs on the side. Hardy. The fact that Richard Nixon, as president when the moon landing happens, really fancies a long, long speech, but is told that he has to cut it down a bit because these men are on the moon, have things to do. I like the fact that no one ever thinks about... Michael Collins, the third man, who at one point, Kit, must have been the loneliest human being in existence because he's going round the dark side of the moon whilst Aldrin and Armstrong are on the surface of the moon. Yeah, at that point, he's probably the furthest away from another human being, essentially. I mean, bear in mind that there had been a dress rehearsal. So Apollo 10 was a virtual dress rehearsal. They actually got to within 15 kilometres of the moon. So it was a very similar kind of pattern. And, and I'm not sure the name of the astronaut who was in that, that capsule. He probably was in a very similar position. But in terms of going out as far as you can, uh, apart from Apollo 13, which I said has to slingshot around, this is about as far out as humans have ever gone. It's not quite as far as Earthlings have ever gone because the Russians actually sent a probe called Zond 5 that was out a little bit further around the moon. And so the furthest Earthlings that have actually gone into space is two tortoises who are sort of strapped into position. There you go. So, so tortoises are actually beating the humans and the hares <laughs> at the moment when it comes to space. As the 70s develop and various economic crises rock the Western world, is there a kickback? against the amount of money that the Apollo program has cost. Yeah, there is. And and we start seeing, obviously, the, the curtailing of programs. As I mentioned, we have uh, up to Apollo 17. There were actually several missions that were planned beyond that, and they, they scrubbed them, they cancelled them. Instead, we get things like Skylab, which is a, a much less ambitious project. But then it starts coming around in circles again. People are going, actually, why aren't we looking into space? Why aren't we pushing for this? And so we get the, the space shuttle coming in uh, and we get later generation of astronauts, including, I think, in the song we have Sally Ride later on. Um, so we start seeing this push again. And it's in science, it ebbs and flows the money, depending on what's happening and what the political situation is and things like that. The key thing always to remember in science is that while we want the applications, which is the actual stuff to do, the fundamental science, the underpinning of science is something we always need to invest in because we get the end results 10 to 20 years down the line, but they're much better. And that was something the Apollo mission really kind of helped with because they were forcing to really pushing come to this target, it meant that we got a lot of fundamental technologies that we would never have considered otherwise within the next decade. And speaking of results in the next decade, being a kid in the 1970s, I have such strong memories of numerous consumer products marketed with greater and lesser degrees of plausibility as used by the astronauts or eaten on the moon or developed by NASA for the moonshot. And um, I'm thinking of Tang 
powdered orange drink. That was something I enjoyed very much as a child. There was freeze-dried ice cream, which were these waxy little chips of something that was vaguely vanillic. There was something called space sticks, which was also, again, a kind of a waxy tube of inedible fudge fortified with vitamins. Kit, was any of this stuff really used in the space flight? I mean, I know we've thoroughly established that poo-filled doggy bags <laughs> were, but what about Tang, instant breakfast, all that kind of thing? Casey, please tell me you're not asking me to ruin your childhood. No, I sort of am. Astronaut ice cream was not a thing. Um, oh. I can tell you that space rocks weren't really from space either. Uh, Tang was used in space missions, though. <gasps> so Tang wasn't invented for space missions. It actually predates it, but it was used in some of the missions. So if you had Tang, yes, astronauts drank Tang. Freeze-dried foods were not designed again, but they were used. Teflon, again, was used, things like that. Um, the stuff that is made for the program and is often sold as sort of, you know, made for astronauts, all that kind of thing. Those yeah. are things like memory foam. So memory oh. foam absolutely was because they needed to be in their seats. Uh, so temper, if you've ever heard of that kind of stuff, that was developed by, by NASA. Uh, space blankets is the, is the other thing that people probably know. Marathon runners throwing them on, that kind of foil blankets. That is absolutely a, um, a NASA thing. Inner ear thermometers, because they needed to be able to tell temperature that way. And also things that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being even remotely related to space. So LASIK, that was so they could work out docking of space vehicles, things like that, but scratch resistant lenses. You also get some spin-off technologies that aren't actually developed during the, um, the space race, but they are done, developed by someone who worked in the space race. So a NASA engineer designed you know, running shoes, training shoes. Mm. So uh, your Nikes, all that kind of stuff, that comes as a byproduct of the Apollo missions. I've read, Kit, that walking on the moon, for those 12 men who walked on the moon, clearly it was a life-altering moment and that many of them struggled to cope with life back on Earth because they had seen our world from a totally different perspective and they had done something which they would probably never again be able to match. It's one of those things that how do you possibly do that? There's this very famous conversation where um, there was this, this meeting um, of... You know, brilliant minds or something like that. And Neil Gaiman, the, the author, uh, was in the back of the room and he was having a chat with this lovely old gentleman who was kind of very, very quiet and very reserved. And the gentleman turned to him and said, you know, I don't think I should be here. You know, I haven't done anything that these people have done. They've, they've all done wonderful, creative things. And uh, Gaiman turned around to him and said, yes, but you've walked on the moon, Neil Armstrong. You know, <laughs> There's this sort of um, dissociation, I guess, when you've done something like that. And I think it's imposter syndrome. You know, it's, it's a very famous thing that you know, people who are incredibly good at their jobs often don't think that they're particularly good. These men were selected because they were fantastic pilots. They were incredibly brave. They were willing to do it. They were volunteers. But ultimately, they were going from a normal person with a normal life. They've got a family. They've got kids. In fact, their families would actually listen to them, their missions. They've got something called a squawk box inside their houses so that the families could listen in. And when NASA turned off the squawk box, that, that generally meant something was up, up and then something was going wrong. And they've, they're going from these into becoming a celebrity overnight. Can you help me out with a urban myth kit, which is to do with something that Neil Armstrong is supposed to have said on the moon? The phrase he is supposed to have come out with, Katie, is good luck, Mr. Gorski. Don't know if you've heard this particular urban myth, Kit. I haven't. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued now, Tom. What is this about? It's it's quite an indecorous one. Apparently, um, 
apparently Neil Armstrong's neighbours when he was growing up, Mr Gorski and Mrs Gorski. Mr Gorski inquired one evening as to whether Mrs Gorski would perform oral sex on him. And the urban myth is that Mrs Gorski said, when the kid next door walks on the moon, then I will. So that is supposedly why Neil Armstrong said, good luck, Mr. Gorski, on the moment he walked on the moon. That is very convoluted and very enjoyable. Apparently it's not true. It's, um, I was going to say, but, even more enjoyable for Mr. Gorski, I would imagine. <laughs> I'm wondering about then versus now in terms of traveling in outer space. Of course, the first man on the moon was the time of just uncanny innocence and wonder. And now we have the likes of Elon Musk trying to set up a homestead on Mars. And that seems to be a difference in motivation, um, certainly with regard to the public perception of these initiatives, because, I mean, I see the moon landing as a celebration of mankind, while Musk's Mars mission strikes me as a billionaire seeking to get the hell out of Dodge as mankind destroys the Eden that was Earth. So it seems like one is trying to improve things and one is trying to just, you know, it's an escape hatch. But what what is your feeling about the civilian space travel project? So the, there's two angles there. The first is, uh, you know, Bezos and Branson trying to be the first people to, have, to go into space and racing each other, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and Musk launching a, his car into space. All that. that is billionaires waving their dicks. That is all that is. It's just kind of embarrassing and, and frankly, also polluting. I mean, we try and talk about the fact that we need to start thinking about climate change, blasting off and firing rockets and things like that. Not good for the climate, not good for the environment. The only good thing that's come out of it is Bezos actually gave a space to uh, someone called Wally Funk. And she was one of the uh, the Mercury 13. Um, so this was an unofficial group. They were not part of NASA, but it was 13 women who actually went through the same training as the Mercury 7 to prove that women could do it. And she finally got up to up into space, obviously 40, 50 years late, but uh, she still made it. The really interesting thing that's going on right now with the billionaires and your SpaceX's, all that kind of stuff, is it's not really about Mars. It's actually about asteroids. So the problem is on Earth, we're running out of resources. And that can be things like rare earth metals. Um, it can be things like lithium, which we need for batteries. We've, it's the 33rd most abundant element on Earth, but actually we're going to run out of it eventually. Um, and more importantly, helium. So we can't make helium. We can make a lot of other elements. That's not a problem at all. But we can't make helium because it needs to push two hydrogens together. And the only place you can do it really is a fusion reactor. And the problem with helium is it's lighter than air. So it doesn't stay in our ecosystem. It doesn't get recycled. You, know, you can't just get it out of your mobile phone and things like that. Once it's gone, it's gone forever. And helium is really useful for things like, uh, you know, scanning equipment for hospitals and various scientific equipment and keeping people alive. So we kind of need it. And what they're doing is developing the technology, developing the ability so they can go up and they can mine asteroids and they can get helium and the rare earths off them. And so a big part of this is actually pushing towards sort of, you know, the commercialization of space, which is an incredibly dangerous thing. We need to sort of watch to that. And talking about danger kits, the risks with the Apollo missions were so great. If we were to attempt them today with the same technology, but with the culture we have around us, do you think they would be considered too risky? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... If we did it with the same technology that the Apollo astronauts had available to them, things like that, there are so many fail-safes that if they went wrong, they couldn't go back. 
This is a prototype. This is the reason that we have those first steps. It's so that we can follow after them. And if we did it with um, with the technology that they had back then today, um, I don't think we'd ever try it. We would actually want to make sure it was safe. If we did it with today's technology, obviously get landing on the moon isn't a problem. There are several countries that can do that now. China were already preparing to go back to the moon and they've already landed something on the moon on the, on the dark side of the moon, which by the way is where Jack Parsons' crater is. Of course it's the dark side because he's a, a cultist. <laughs> but... Um, uh, to answer your question, I don't think we would have attempted it. What they did back then, I mean, they really had the right stuff. They were incredibly brave individuals. I'm wondering, Kit, if we'll ever be able to reclaim that sense of innocence about the unknown beyond our planet, because people are sort of so cynical nowadays and inclined to think, oh, you know what, everything's a hoax. Uh, what will it take? Maybe that alien visitation slash takeover that we've been promised for so long? It's a good question. And one of the things that's really interesting with the 20th century is that we have so much technology available to us, we just take it for granted almost. You know, I have the ability to chat now right in this room to a friend of mine who lives in Argentina. And I don't even have to think about how that's going to happen. We can just have a FaceTime conversation and chat. That was technology that they didn't have back in the 1960s. Of course they didn't. The fact that we got these pictures from the moon was, was astonishing. It required whole feats. So we take everything for granted and that kind of gives us a cynicism and it lulls us into a false sense of security of, of course things just work or if we see these achievements, of course they can't be real because they're outside of our, our narrow frame of vision. And I think what we need to do is start to develop a healthy respect for science. I mean, the COVID pandemic has been absolutely terrible for the world. I'm really hoping that people see what we can actually do when we need to come together. Because the way that we actually turned around and went, okay, we need to sort this, we need to develop vaccines now and get working on it. It brought everyone together in a way that we haven't seen probably since the Apollo missions. And if there's one legacy we get from that, I'm really hoping that it's if we actually work together and cooperate and we break down these barriers that we've created for ourselves, we can achieve great things. I love your enthusiasm for all things outer space and indeed all things inner space when we're referring to bowel movements on the moon. Absolutely. Also love the movie by Dennis Quaid. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me, guys. I, I always love talking about science and geeking out a little could bit. We, before we go, could we just have your JFK speech one more time, please? <laughs> we choose to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <sighs> One final fact from me, Katie, before we wrap up for this week, and that is, can you name the Quincy Jones and Frank Sinatra song oh. that US TV used to introduce their television coverage of the moon landings? <laughs> um, my Way? Keep going. Uh, something Stupid? <laughs> <laughs> for the greatest technological achievement in human history? Uh Come fly with me. So close. Oh, fly me to the moon uh, and let me play amongst the stars. On Jupiter and Mars, once we've landed on the moon, moon first, because Jupiter's a long way off. Oh, so clever. If given the choice, Katie, would you have flown to the moon? We've talked about this I know before. We have. Have I you don't want your mind? to. I don't want. Don't make me leave. <laughs> Look, I've just met a beautiful man. 
and I just want him he to could hold go with you. I don't I need to stay here in the the right gravity that I'm used to. I need his arms around me. This is not going to happen in a fart-filled space cap- <laughs> capsule and you know a doggy bag for two filled with our intertwined poo. That is not the future I see for me and my gentleman friend. You make a persuasive argument, Katie. Um, while we are talking about great technological leaps, Katie, yes. let's talk about .com, which is our new tech strand. And Katie, it is you. It is all you. It's me. It's all me. And this series of .com is called The Hacking. It lifts the veil on the internet. It's the third series. It's all about the complex world of ransomware and cyber attacks because in this brave new world, nothing is too small or big to be digitalized, and that includes acts of war. Russian ransomware attacks almost doubled last year, and at this very moment, cyber criminals are lurking around, crippling schools, supermarkets, dental practices, kindergartens, hospitals, oil pipelines. You know it. You got it all in the name of money. And I want to know who is doing this. Why are they doing this? Casey, I will cut to the chase. It is fascinating and brilliantly done. Thank you. If you would like to give it a listen, just search for .com, the hacking, D-O-T-C-O-M. And next week, Tom Fordyce, we're going back to the garden. And where is that? (laughs) We're not going to wash Katie. We're going to smoke an amazing amount of weed and probably take some LSD, which would be a bad idea, because we're going to Woodstock. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, 
and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.